Welcome to the Water People Podcast. Today, we're in conversation with Madison Stewart, better known as Shark Girl. She's a dive master, filmmaker, and entrepreneur, 2017's Australian Geographic Society Young Conservationist of the Year, and author of The Australian Guide to Surfing with Sharks. In 2017, Madison Stewart was featured as one of seven ocean guardians in the documentary Blue. She's also partnered with the Smithsonian to make a documentary about her passion for shutting down shark fisheries on the Great Barrier Reef and beyond. She says that she works to take back what she believes is hers, and that is a future in an ocean that has sharks. Yeah, wow, what an amazing spirit. And the fact that she's a young woman, you know, coming from the blessed country of Australia where you can just sit back and enjoy ecology and have a little part in the country where, you know, you think things are all fine and dandy. But then, you know, just scratching the surface a little bit and looking a little deeper and really having a good look at ourselves and a good look at what we're a part of seems to be something that comes very naturally to Maddie Mm. and that she can take the concern that I think all of us coastal people have for ecology and really turn it into some serious effort, you know. Like she's really putting her own well-being and her own skin on the line there and that's got nothing to do with diving with sharks you know we might think oh that's so dangerous looking diving with sharks but it's actually far more dangerous what she's doing dealing with you know radical industry and radical um, interests who are looking to just make money off sharks Mm. we hear a lot of sort of anecdotal stories about sharks this time of year with the humpback whale migration passing by and there are always you know or usually an increased number of surfer shark interactions but it seems like by all accounts you know despite those anecdotal stories global shark populations are declining there were some studies that came through along the queensland coast that said that populations there have declined by more than 90 percent for some species in the last five decades i also read that approximately 100 million sharks are killed globally each year and one of the major incentives for that is the shark fin trade and that's what maddie's been actively trying to shut down, especially here in Australia. I actually had the experience of going to the Galapagos Islands with the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. Wow, I can't even remember how long ago now, probably 10 or 12 years ago. And, oh no, at least actually, it's probably more like 15 years ago. And going there, we were in, you know, the world's first world heritage site of the Galapagos Islands. It's a marine sanctuary. It's got all the things on paper to prove that it's valuable and to be protected and still there are poachers in there who are uh, shark finning and long lining and supplying those catches those kills to you know a factory ship that was sitting just outside the marine sanctuary and so my actual first-hand experience of shark finning and just how nasty the practices are and seeing sharks sinking to the seafloor without their fins is just an absolute tragedy and I don't have, you know, those fluffy, touchy-feely, new-age things about sharks. I think they're they're amazing. They're kind of scary. They're intimidating. They're to be really deeply respected. Fossil records date them back to like four hundred million years. <laughs> oh, wow. They've they've outlived dinosaurs. You know, I mean, obviously yeah. dinosaurs, but most creatures yeah. on the planet. They've well, that's they've a radical amount of time. They're an evolutionary. Yeah. 
And you feel it when you see them, when you see them in those spaces that they inhabit where they're meant to be, they're absolutely stunning. They're so amazing and demand so much respect. And so, yeah, when I saw all of that happening in the Galapagos Islands, that was a real wake-up call for me around this issue Mm -hmm. and an actual first-hand experience of that trade and those practices and how kind of nasty they are. And it makes me think about Maddie and that she's really taken first-hand experiential education to the next level. You know, she is, she, she is someone who's just dove in real deep and felt strong and confident enough in that first-hand experience to then go and speak for those animals and speak for those people that are interacting with those animals, even if they're people that you traditionally would say are on one side of the fence and she's on the other. And it seems like she's just knocked that fence down and keeps doing that and just steps over that line that a lot of us are a bit too uncomfortable or Mm -hmm. scared to cross. And she just walks straight over it and starts the conversation and does so in a really humanising and sweet way and is really having amazing results because of it. She's really running some of the most compassionate conservation projects that I've heard of. Her her approach is so thoughtful and considered and kind, really, mm. to the cultures that she's working with, to people, really, to fishermen. You know, she's taken it upon herself to befriend fishermen and to work with them instead of demonizing them, which is so common in marine conservation work. What really surprised me was the fact that shark is sold and eaten probably by the majority of Australians. It's sold as fish and chips, usually labeled as flake. Yeah. I didn't realize that. And I was checking out Madison's Vimeo page, and she had a really recent video where she went to Florida and investigated shark being sold on the shelves there in Publix, which was the supermarket that I grew up shopping at. And sharks really common on menus in Floridian restaurants too. Mm. And I don't know why that shocked me. I mean, of course, shark is a fish, but I don't know. When you think about eating other major apex predators like tigers and lions, I don't, it just seems mm. a little bit audacious. Yeah, totally. And super sketchy when you consider bioaccumulation and all the things that are floating around in apex predators' bodies these days, especially those in the ocean. And, you know, you can take the sort of self-centred route and just be like, well, actually, it's a terrible decision on behalf of my body Mm. and I, you know, don't want to participate in purchasing anything related to sharks because of just that. Even if you don't have the interest in their well-being and the way they serve such an amazing function in ecology, you can just look at it on that level of personal health. And it's a smart and logical and very rational decision to make to not buy flake, to not buy shark and to sidestep and start withdrawing support and energy from those practices in that industry. Yeah, she talks about how she um, did independent testing on samples of shark meat here in Australia and in Florida and pretty much 80% of those samples came back as somewhat or way over the accepted limits of mercury um, mm. parts per million. Mercury in the food chain is 
really, really nasty. It's got a long history. You know, one of the most horrific cases is the Minamata disease, even though it's not a disease. It's like the Minamata poisoning, basically, which was mercury in an area of Japan a long time ago. And just the horrific things that can come from it, you know, a lot of uh, neurological damage and damage to your brain systems, a lot of danger when it comes to fertility rates and birth Mm. defects and deformities and... Um, really horrific stuff. There's been a lot of documentation on how mercury in our systems is really nasty, especially when it's at those levels that mm. are so extreme that your body can't um, metabolize. Yeah, metabolize, I guess, and and expel them. Mm. So it's it's no joke, you know. It's not like this thing where it's like, oh yeah, you you should just sidestep a little bit of it. It's it's actually a really serious issue. Well, we've seen that with some of our friends, haven't we? Friends exactly, who were on yeah. the world tour or we're traveling as competitive surfers and we're living island life quite quite a lot and they were eating large pelagic fish multiple times a day and and at home too yeah east coast life in australia just everyday life here at least one of our friends is you know suffering pretty regularly from some of the impacts of mercury poisoning yeah and has had to do a long process of eradicating it from the system because Mm -hmm. of that so so, yeah, there's that whole angle with her work and it seems to be gaining traction and that's great. But there's also that, that side, like you were saying, of her just really humanising the fishermen in these stories and their families and their way of life and that all of us would probably be making the same choice if we were living in a really struggling situation and you have little kids to feed and and there's no real options in an isolated coastal village. Mm. So it's it's amazing what she's doing. And she's just got that classic little sort of cheeky vibe to her, which is so wonderful that there's a, a real joy in the work she's doing and you can tell she would rather be doing nothing else, you mm. know. And, and though it is tricky, there's times, you know, where she talks about it not being that fun to do the work she's doing. Um, but but really, you know, you can just see that her sails are full and her course is set and she's got this clarity and strength because of that and there's a, a really meaningful young life being led and, and it's just really inspiring. Mm, it sure is. And she's recently put together the Australian Guide to Surfing with Sharks, which is scientifically backed tips and personal responsibilities that we can all take as surfers going into a wild space to try to minimize the possibility of an encounter with sharks. We started the conversation with Maddie in the place we always do, which is asking her the question about a time or experience after which she was never the same. And actually it was among a great period of rain in our region and the frogs I don't know if they'll come through (laughs) (laughs) the way they were on that day, but they were pretty loud and stoked to have rain. So, And we're in the middle of drought right now, so it was a really unfamiliar (laughs) sound at the moment. Yeah, exactly. So forgive us if you don't like the sound of green tree frogs singing their joys about the rain, but that's just something that comes with the territory. (laughs) We hope you enjoy. The Water People podcast is brought to you by the fine folks at Sanuk. 
They craft the comfiest footwear around and have been advocates for a more playful and inclusive surfing culture for more than two decades. Thanks, Sanook, for your support and for encouraging water people around the globe to protect their happy places. Learn more about Sanook's partnership with the Surfrider Foundation at sanook.com. Thanks also to Gary McNeil Concepts for their support in making the podcast possible. Gary McNeil shapes some of the quirkiest boards around and is constantly innovating with new board materials like hemp and flax to reduce the petrochemical footprint of his boards. Learn more at garymcneilconcepts.com.au. So imagine me as a 12-year-old kid obsessed with the ocean, obsessed with sharks. Everybody thought I was crazy. Um, my dad took me diving every school holidays. And we would always go back to the same place on the Great Barrier Reef. And there was this one night dive that we'd do on every trip. And the night dive would be shark time. So it was my favorite. And you're talking like 40 gray reef sharks around you. And I would always get in the water, me and my dad, we'd wait for everybody to go look at the coral and the fish and all the boring stuff. And we'd wait under the boat because the floodlights from the boat would attract the fish and then the sharks would come. So they were just small sharks, but fun little reef sharks. And me and dad would just sit there and watch them. And then one night I learnt that if I increased my breathing, it would increase my heart rate and the sharks would pick up on that. And they'd like come closer to me and buzz me. And it was like the funnest thing ever. It was literally like a kid playing with their pet dog. And that's how I felt every time I got in the water with those sharks. So I got to experience that from age 12 up until age 14. And it was the best thing ever. And then when I was 14, I actually left school and began homeschooling. And one of the first things that we did after I started homeschooling was go back to that reef. And I remember being so excited because I had a video camera this time and I was gonna get in the water and film these crazy sharks that I'd seen a few years before. Same reef, same time of year, same time of night, jumped in the water and there was one shark there. And these sharks, this species is a home range shark so they don't stray from the territories that they grow up in. So there was no reason that they shouldn't have been there other than overfishing. And I remember being under the boat, kind of by myself in the dark and being terrified not because there were sharks, but because there were no sharks. And I just got out of the water a completely different person after that. And I remember just that split second of thinking to myself, I just got an underwater video camera and I was excited to show the world all the amazing things I've seen. And I'm 14 years old inside the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park. And already there is a sign to me that I'm not gonna be able to show the world what I'm seeing because it's disappearing. And then that led me to become involved in conservation, which was never something that I actually wanted to do. But just thinking about how shocking and sad it was to come to that realization at 14 years old and to have this amazing experience with these sharks that felt like family just ripped away from me. It led me to research what could have been happening to them, which led me to find out about legal shark fisheries on the Great Barrier Reef with licenses to take over 100,000 sharks a year from within the marine park legally to support shark fisheries in Australia. So that's where it all kind of started for me. And after that one experience in the ocean, I was never the same. Wow. Yeah. Amazing, as a 14 year old. Yeah. And that's just something you hear a lot when you do stuff like this is, um, you're too young to know what you're talking about, or you're too young to have an opinion on this. Well, it's like, well, it's actually how young I was that gave my argument such validity. Like, why else would someone so young want to talk about the planet being destroyed unless they'd witnessed it? 
And when you hear that from young people seeing a difference in their lifetime, it's even worse than someone with years and years and years of experience. So, yeah. Hmm. So you didn't go to university? No. I feel like that's probably another point that a lot of people make when you're referencing journal studies or whatever. I feel like people come back to you like, well, what are your qualifications? What have you yeah. done that qualifies you to be an expert in this field and have a, you know, a world stage? And 100%. Yeah, I'm always ranting about that. Um, I never even finished school. And it was always my dream to uh, grow up and go do marine biology and save the world. That was always my dream. But it's like, how was I meant to do that when I was seeing this stuff go down at 14? And I was like, there's no way. And I realized now if I'd done that, I would have finished university last year and I wouldn't have done any of the things that I had done. And I think that there is a great importance for people to become involved in science and create legitimate research to show what's happening to the planet. But there's never enough emphasis on how important it is to have people that make a connection between that research and the general public that's going to affect it. So having a place doing that through what I like doing, which is filmmaking, has been the right path for me. And I think it's really, really, really important that we encourage people to both become engaged in science and getting university degrees, but also taking a separate path and using their passion to raise awareness about the research that those degrees are going to find. Because if it wasn't for people in between, the general public wouldn't be exposed to scientific journals showing things. So it's important as well. Can you remember back to any moments like face-to-face -face with people where there's been tension? Like have you had moments where you've been in situ, like you're out on a boat and you're clashing with someone yeah. from that world? Have you had a yeah. lot of those mo times? Oh, I've been screamed at by fishermen. I've been, you know, it's, it's really sad. A lot of my opposition has come from people within the industry, like other conservationists, which is actually what led me to start working with fishermen in the first place. So everybody's got their way of doing things that doesn't always agree. Um, as a kid, I used to be a lot more aggressive and people, I mean, even when I volunteered for Sea Shepherd and I was trying to raise money for sharks, it was just a completely different mentality from people on the street. You'd get abused by like talking about sharks and how could you and defend this animal and blah, blah, blah. And just hate mail on everything on social media. Yeah, definitely a lot. A lot of arguments with fishermen. Um, People within fisheries, I remember going to a dive expo one year and there were so many people from fisheries there doing their speeches and their talks. And I would just raise questions and just, it became like a real hostile environment and discussion because I knew so much about these fisheries and they didn't. And that was really interesting. That was a real, really cool ego boost for me in regards to conservation is realizing how much you could learn and take on authority just with a little bit of extensive knowledge into something in particular. So everything I learned about that fishery was able to really have them contradicting some of their statements and just to prove that they have no idea what they're doing a lot of the time. And what do they have no idea about? When you think of that, what specifics are you thinking of when you think back to those times? So one of the first things I did was target the illegal shark fisheries on the Great Barrier Reef. And I remember I wrote a synopsis about it. So I sat down and I read like 200 different fisheries documents. And every year they put out an annual report on this fishery, just going over some of the observed catch, the bycatch, the targets and all that kind of stuff. And the information I learned, simple things like sometimes only 18% of their catch was target species and the rest was bycatch. They relied on certain approaches to fishing sustainably that they claimed gave them the ability to fish these sharks without affecting the population, but they were contradicting evidence from other research that shows that it didn't. 
there was statements from all kinds of scientists saying this doesn't work because of this and what about this and what about this and a lot of the fisheries relied on increased management as the fishery goes on which is basically how every fishery works is we're not going to protect something until it starts to decrease because of us overfishing it so it was just really interesting I think a lot of people go into conservation thinking that the opposition has their shit together but they don't like that's the biggest mistake you can make is thinking that you're not going to be able to have a valid argument against fisheries or a giant corporation but the flaws and the cracks that I found has been really really easy to find I mean I found illegal levels of mercury and shark meat sold at Woolworths a few years ago and then I sat down with the head of sustainability at Woolworths and showed it to them and saw the colour leave their face during that meeting so <laughs> it's been really cool to have tiny little victories where you realize that you can actually take on things like that. Is shark meat still being sold yep. to the Australian public? Oh, absolutely. Shark meat is everywhere. It's sold as flake, sold as white fish. Sometimes it's sold under other fish names. Usually when you're buying battered fish and chips and it doesn't specify what fish it is, it's usually shark. Um, it's got an average price of $1.50 a kilogram for shark meat. So it's very commonly used in the seafood industry. And seafood's not like, you know, a butcher, you can't buy beef and they call it chicken, but they can do that with seafood. So they do it a lot. Why shouldn't people be eating shark? A number of reasons. People shouldn't be eating shark because it is the same as eating dolphin. It's an apex predator that we shouldn't be targeting. Um, it supports the export of shark fins, which we shouldn't be supporting. And the biggest reason that should appeal to everyone is for health. The amount of toxins in shark meat, such as mercury, arsenic, selenium, all these things have been proven to be really abundant in apex predators like sharks. So it's a really bad idea. And it's really shocking to see that the Australian government and establishments like Woolworths even market shark to families and pregnant women when it has such an effect on small children. Women who are pregnant or planning to become pregnant can be really affected by the mercury levels in shark. Um, how often do the heavy metals and mercury levels tip over in shark here in Australia, shark on the shelves anyway? Yeah, so I've done maybe five different mercury tests now. I've done some in the United States and some in Australia. And every time I go buy samples and have them tested, there's always something that's over the limit. Every time. And I got them from all over the place. So when I tested about 14 samples the very first time, 80% of them were over legal limits and the other ones were very high. So it's not uncommon. And what did the Woolies people who turned into white ghosts before your eyes, what did they do after you alerted them? Well, there's no way for them to check everything for the mercury content. It's just not possible. Uh, even if they were doing average checks, you know, you have one fillet next to the other that could have a completely different mercury level in it. So after that, they kind of refused to correspond with us. It was right before the release of my very first documentary as well, which was on the ABC. So we had this big thing where the ABC didn't want to speak out against Woolworths and mention them in the film, mention the mercury level. And then I faced real trouble getting that information into the media afterwards as well because Woolworths obviously has a lot of airtime with commercials and stuff and nobody really wants to get caught with defamation against Woolworths. So it was really hard to get it into the media. But it was released in Shark Girl and Woolworths did put out a statement briefly to me with some rubbish about their shark meat being sustainable and safe, of course. And they didn't really correspond much after that, but I have not seen it on the shelves since then. Um, a couple months later, 
it kind of stopped and we thought it might maybe it'll come back later but we haven't seen it well that's a pretty so, huge impact yeah whether or not that's something that we contributed to is just really good to to be able to prove to people to take a little bit of trust away in large corporations and you know we live in a society so separated from the origin of our food and we just feel safe but we shouldn't so mm. it really it's upsetting to think how many people on a budget pregnant mothers on a budget would go and buy shark meat because it's the cheapest thing there and put themselves at risk i feel like with issues around sharks we have to start to deconstruct our anthropocentric view of the world that is we have ourselves humankind at the center of the universe and so as an anthropocentric human thinking about myself if i'm thinking about sharks i'm thinking they're a threat to me why would i try to protect something that could kill me you know in the cultural paradigm that we've been raised it's been survival of the fittest kill or be killed with very little mention of cooperation or interconnection and understanding ecological connections and so how can we start to reform the way we think about a big apex predator that most of us view as you know a human killer yeah there's very few animals these days that um makes us feel like we're not in control. And that's one thing that sharks have that humans are not that okay with. <laughs> Very few animals that we still haven't established control over. And we all wanna go in the ocean, so there's really no way to avoid it. I think we put a lot of value on human life despite us even being a danger to each other. And it's kind of crazy that we don't put value on dangerous animals' lives when their purpose is survival and not intentionally attacking us. I think it's got to come from a place of respect and the way that we look at dinosaurs even though they're not here right now like they're amazing and it's difficult for me because I've always had a respect for sharks even as a kid and my favorite thing about them was being out of place and was being in a dangerous situation and seeing the last wild thing like there's so few places that you can do that now so people just have to have a respect for them and I guess to realize that we are never actually going to rid the ocean of potential dangerous encounters with sharks. So attacking them for doing what they do is not going to help either. And we've just got to kind of accept their presence. We're never going to get away from it. So you sound really optimistic when you say something like that, mm. that we're never going to get away from those encounters with sharks. Are you really? Do you feel it you underneath? Mean like, like, like sharks are going to be completely plight? wiped yeah. out? Like, do you feel like they're always going to be here? I feel like they'll survive a lot longer than us. Even if they get to such a drastic point, like they're out already and they get nearly fished out to extinction in some areas, there's still going to be environmental factors that bring them where we are. And even more so once they're under threat. So the, like the changes in, in temperature, pushing their food sources closer to shore, like the worse we do to the planet, the actual more at risk we make ourselves. Isn't that already happening? Don't yes. you reckon? That's totally what's been happening here in Australia these last few years. 100%. Especially that spike in this area and the East Australian current ballooning in and all the tropical species coming down the coast. Mm -hmm. and, and from all the reports, all the fishermen saying how much the the big shapes from way outside were actually following them all the way into the Richmond River and the Clarence, yeah. you know, which they hadn't really seen. And 
There's so many theories, so many explanations, and almost all of them revolve around humans exacerbating the environmental situation. Yeah. So even without the theories, the observed activity is that already. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like you're hungry. Like you say you're driving from A to B and you've been traveling heaps and you're really, really hungry and it's two in the morning and there's nothing to eat. You haven't eaten in ages. You don't know when your next opportunity comes. And then you come over the hill and there's a tragic fast food joint right there. And it's got all the nastiest stuff. (laughs) You're probably going to eat that Chico roll or whatever nasty stuff. If you're that desperate, right, you will have it. And you could say that's a lot of what's been happening in the ocean with encounters with animals that have got not a lot of options left. People definitely have this idea of sharks that they're amazing apex predators when half the time they're just lazy scavengers. Like they literally are kids with munchies and they just want to get the easiest thing with the least amount of effort. That is 100% a shark's personality. So yeah, there are opportunities to scavenge which are created by us and our agriculture industries and our fishing habits is very, very much so one of the reasons that we interact with them more than we'd like to. Hmm. So our neighbor here, George Greeno, he's a noted surf elder, designer, inventor, and ocean elder. He has a lot to say about sharks, including that they're a great threat to dolphin populations. And he doesn't think that overfishing has much to do with sharks, basically. Well, the current increase in human and shark interaction in this area. Yeah. His encounters with dolphins in this region over decades are showing him right now that he keeps seeing dolphins with bites out of them uh, and dropping numbers in a way that he hasn't seen here before in the last 40 to 50 years. Basically, what I was trying to get to is some local, especially fishermen's anecdotes would suggest that there are more sharks than ever. Mm-hmm. Whereas globally, we're really seeing a massive decline in shark populations, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot of people saying that the great white populations in particular have boomed because of the protection that was in place about more than 30 years ago. But when you look at the time it takes for them to reproduce, become sexually mature, gestate and have baby sharks sort of grow up and boom that population, it's not possible. The time that we've allowed to have them protected is not causing that. And we could wipe out 98% of the sharks in the ocean, if there's a food source for the remaining 2% and they're gathered in a particular area, of course it's going to look like their population's boomed. So we don't, we don't know what factor is bringing them here. We know that there's nurseries up and down the coast. We know that they respond to feeding opportunities. All kinds of things that could just have them in the area. But to say that their population has boomed is not something that I've seen scientifically supported. Are you at all willing to go into one of those areas of interest like agriculture and those links you were talking about before? Because that to me, when you were saying that then, that's so fascinating to turn the mirror around and have a good look at ourselves collectively and try and see how else we're influencing these encounters and these breakdowns and these systemic problems and so what you were mentioning before was these live export and animal industry impacts on river systems and then into the ocean yeah what are your thoughts on that yeah i'm really excited i i started making this film a little over a year ago 
and I've just kind of let it sit there because I got distracted, but I'm working on it again now. And it's a film all about how animal agriculture is potentially causing more human-shark interactions. And it began when I was in Western Australia for the shark cull, and there was actually some unusual species hooked on drumlines at the arrival of live export ships. And then Humane Society International uh, released a document suggesting that they could have something to do with increased shark presence. So I read through this document and then I looked at some of the shark attacks and the time of the boats that rock up there which are easily tracked and I was like there's a correlation here. And then I started looking into the Glebe and Homebush Abattoir in Sydney and they were open like in the 80s and half of all shark attack fatalities recorded in New South Wales occurred in that area uh, when these abattoirs were in operation. So there's a lot of links between that and it makes so much sense. And I mean, even here in Byron, you have the old whaling station and they used to just catch great whites for fun off the end of the dock because they're in the area because of the whales. Like I said, these animals are opportunists and they're scavengers and they do learn. And I recently was on uh, Norfolk Island and they, that's an amazing place, but they've been dumping cattle off uh, one of their cliffs in a certain area for the last 150 years. Um, just organic waste going into the ocean, it's just a practice they've had for ages. And the tiger sharks are so accustomed to this occurring that they're pretty much always in the area. And I saw like six different sharks in one day when they had dumped some stuff off the thing. So there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that animal agriculture, especially when on the coastline, is contributing to shark attacks. But now that we have it on such a large, large scale, we have live export ships illegally dumping so they don't get hit with customs fines. And we have animal uh, factory farms that dump their waste into the river or it gets into the water table and then runs out. We have all these things contributing on rivers, on coastlines, contributing to putting animal waste into the ocean. It only makes sense that that could be attracting sharks and causing more shark attacks, mm. especially at certain times like heavy rainfall. Mm. Wow, yeah, and on top of what you were saying about the whaling station in Byron is the piggery right there too, the piggery and the slaughterhouses that were right there at Belongeville, mm -hmm. the history of that. And it makes me wonder, because a lot of people in this area always refer back to that, like, oh, you know, there's Belongeville's got a got more activity with shark encounters and other areas around here because of that history there. Is that just like a bit of surface superstition or do you think that there's a long enough memory in the local shark population to know that that is a place or is there still something embedded in, in the ecology like a scent or something there that would have them going back to a site like that even now years after anything's been dumped there? I think absolutely. Yeah? Yeah, and I think that um, we're probably seeing the end of the generation of sharks that was trained to do that right about now. So there would still be that mentality because sharks are very, can be very, very old. And I think that an animal that travels across the ocean and relies a lot on energy and presence and picking up on opportunities would definitely be in tuned enough to just kind of know certain areas. What is the lifespan of um, bigger species? It's it's still fairly unknown. Wow. But there are sharks that live that have been recorded live more than seventy years. So there's no doubt that there's some old ones hanging around. Yeah. 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 So the children or grandchildren of sharks that were 
picking off, you know, the scraps from the whaling station would have had that information passed down to them and would still remember, obviously. I mean, it's pretty close. Yeah, I think, I think sharks learn from other sharks as well. I think this area is so packed with life in general and that all the sharks pass through this area on their migration routes. And there's definitely some energy and presence in that area that has them relying on it for food source. And even when those things stop, the sharks remember and the sharks stick around. Um, I did an interview with an old veterinarian that was on the live export ships and he told me that they would hook great whites just for fun off the export boats and he said the great whites got so accustomed to the boats that even when there was no cattle or sheep on board they would follow them because they recognized the engine sounds. So there could be lots of triggers causing them to think hey there's food in this area. Yeah. The example of Byron as an old whaling station and now it's a major spot for whale watching that switch from fishing industry to tourism industry is a pretty inspiring story of conservation success and you're really building on that right now with um, Project Hue. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, I was asked to go to Indonesia during the creation of the documentary Blue about two years ago. And it was the first time I'd ever been to Indonesia because I pretty much boycotted the place because just because they're fishing. And I was taken to Tongjan Lua, which is a really infamous uh, area to film dead sharks, made famous by a lot of people going there and, and capturing the horrific large various species that they fish and land at this one area and bringing in manta rays and sometimes even dolphins and just the crazy fishing that happens in Indonesia. And I was paid to go there and walk around and look at the sharks and then talk about overfishing. And then I remember being like, well, this kind of sucks because this is all happening in Australia, but it's easy to film here. So lots of people come here. And then I was taken back there a couple times to make more films about it and focus on the fishing. And then I, eventually I was like this, you know, I, I was well aware that the people doing it were not doing it because they hated sharks, especially in places like that. It's, they're doing it to literally survive. And then I literally had this idea, like, I'm going to try to go there one day and I wonder if one of the shark fishermen would rent me out his boat and how much would it cost. And then I was at an award ceremony for Australian Geographic and someone was like, hey, we do grants, you should apply for one. And I was like, all right, just wing it. I'll fill out a grant application form full of spelling mistakes and pitch my crazy idea. And they were like, hey, here it is. And I was like, damn. So, <laughs> and then I went back to Indonesia. I went to that market and it was literally like, okay, I'm going here again to see dead sharks. But today I got to go make friends with one of the fishermen that usually hates anyone with the camera because they think we're going to expose them to the world. So it literally became, I'm going to go up to this fisherman, have a conversation and hey, how much to rent your boat? And this boat, I watched two boats unload about 80 to 100 huge sharks, tiger sharks, makers, bulls and sell them all on the floor. And then the very next day that boat turned around, picked us up from the dock and they were willing to take us on adventures. And that's how Project HU started. And then a few months later, I returned with my first ever tourist. And now I run frequent trips there. I have four boats by one fisherman who is my new best friend. And I am going back in July for my next trip and have a new captain joining the fleet. So he charges me $100 a day to use his boat and I've hired a bunch of them every time I'm there with tourists because if he was shark fishing for two weeks at sea, he'd make $150 for those two weeks. And now he's getting 100 a day for his boat. And it just slowly became this thing of learning how to 
see these men in a completely different light to how they're painted and understand that what they do is for survival and understand that you can't end generations of shark fishing because you love sharks or expect someone who's trying to feed his family to do the same. You've got to offer an alternative. And it was just really amazing to see how many people were discouraged by the idea and just said, you know, you're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. And now it's, it's been insane. And it's, it's to the point now where we contribute to the community so much every time we go back as well that everybody in the village is starting to look at tourism differently and the potential that it has over fishing. And we're talking generations of fishermen. The island that I go to is 99% fishermen. And that's all they do. That's all they know. That's how they survive. And now they take us surfing and snorkeling and they have fun. And it's just been a really crazy thing that just started from a random idea. Wow, that's probably one of the best stories of surfing having an impact that's better than making the next surf ghetto in Bali or I need to run India surf or trips because the boats are two hours from Sumbawa. Yeah. And I've heard there's good waves there and the fishermen obviously like they know all the places to go for surf and I need to actually run surf trips because the boats are really nice and I want to I want to start doing like little things like that. Um, That's exciting you know there's a whole underground coming up with these sort of ethics and end goals in mind like there's a famous surfer from America Greg Long he's like a big wave legend and he's got a place in Africa that he's been going to with another big wave legend and it's a phenomenal wave and it's bound to get really popular and it's going to potentially turn into another surf ghetto type place but they've gotten in with the local council the local heads of community and of fishing and no one surfs yet and they're starting this thing off in a way where it has similar intentions to what you're working on where the influx of people are preventing this whole other really sad and declining future from happening there's a whole new direction opening up for this village and I'm sure there's quite a few other places where this is happening. What you're doing is, is a different angle. It's not as surf-centric as some of these other surf stories I've heard um, like this, but it's neat. You're, you're not alone in that pursuit. And it's so it's amazing. exciting, yeah. Like, it's so amazing. I mean, there's so many places you can go in Indonesia to rent a boat, and usually the customer service isn't that great, and they just want to get you out to the wave and bring you back as soon as they can and make some money off you. But these fishermen, you know, it starts raining and they put all our, it's dive gear, but they put it all undercover. You know, I asked them, I said to them last time I was there, like, some of my guests are having trouble getting back on the boat. You need to build a ladder. And I came back to three brand new wooden ladders that they'd built and painted. Like, they're so happy and keen with the prospect of making money without leaving their families for two weeks and facing prosecution because they go all the way into Australian waters to make money. And the people that are on my trips are just amazing. They don't come because they want to snorkel Indonesia. They come because they know these boats would be fishing sharks if we weren't there. And as people in the first world with the money and the privilege to travel, we should definitely be trying to do that in a way that benefits something. But it's been really fun for me because I get to go be in the water and be in Indonesia while helping sharks. And I've never been able to help sharks and simultaneously enjoy myself. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's never been like a fun thing. It's been like, oh, I'll go to this shark finning factory and try and sneak in. And now it's like, yeah, I get to surf. I'm helping sharks technically. <laughs> so That's the new world of, 
of everyday activism though. There's so many other options to enact your compassion or your concern yeah. than there used to be and this is a great example of that. It's a great example of making activism accessible and also setting aside a lot of the shame and blame that yeah. has traditionally come with finger pointing conservation work. And I'm sure people who are listening will also be asking, okay, so we're creating tourism industry that comes with its own environmental impacts even if we're you know saving sharks maybe even hundreds or thousands of sharks we're having impacts in other ways have 100 have you looked at re reducing impacts on yeah. land or how, how are you structuring all of that so right now i don't want the area to be opened up to tourism i want it to be opened up to my specific groups so i can control people that go and everybody goes through an interview process to make sure they're going to respect the muslim culture the fact that they are fishermen and the fact that we are going to where they are um, I've introduced the first waste management to that island that they've ever had and that's a big deal because that island otherwise was throwing trash onto the beach and now we can actually start offering them financial incentives to collect the trash and for it to be recycled. Uh, we're going to bring them clean water, we're gonna, we've been helping the school a lot as well, so trying to really put back into the community things that they otherwise wouldn't have with our presence. Um, and then there's always going to be setbacks, like the boats spill oil into the water, trying to teach the fishermen not to throw their cigarette butts over the side. Um, just our, our presence there and there's always things like that. And there's a place in Mexico which I think was the first example of sharks being used in tourism as opposed to fishing where they started whale shark uh, tourism. And then you see one poor whale shark on a day that they haven't spotted the huge school and they're dropping like a hundred people next to this whale shark. And you're like, oh, this is terrible. But if we weren't there, they would be finning that whale shark. So while we are slowly learning how to do things correctly and getting to a better place with managing this kind of stuff, there's always going to be things like that. But it's better than the alternative right now. So, Does it feel like change is more accessible in Indonesia than it is in Australia in terms of reforming shark fishing practices? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Um, Why? It's it's crazy. I've just I've been through this with so many people who just absolutely worship the fact that I've been able to make such headway in Indonesia and with some of the world's most infamous shark hunters. And it's been like all I did was be nice to them, you know, <laughs> like they're not evil and just trying to convince people that. But what we're dealing with in Australia is not generation's mentality or survival, it's, it's industry, it's money, and it's all happening exactly the same but behind closed doors. So it's a lot harder to access and in Indonesia I can offer them alternatives, whereas here it's just all you can do is offer them bad publicity for what they're doing. Um, and they don't want to change, even if they can, they don't, they don't want to. And it's also we don't have the support of the public here. We don't have a strong enough culture of protecting our wild resources probably because they're so abundant and we're so lucky to live somewhere like this where we have all this wilderness surrounding us so we don't appreciate that we're also exhausting it. So where does that leave you now then given that there's such challenge here in Australia where are you at with turning that ship around? I'll always definitely want to fight for things happening in Australia and that's really what I started doing was fighting fisheries here 
And then I moved away from it and started doing things all around the world, which has been really nice and really cool. And I feel like really necessary to my own mental health to have little wins elsewhere so I don't get burnt out here. But I'll always seize as many opportunities as I can to make differences in Australia. And it's been unfortunate that I have gotten to work on so many amazing film projects, but they want to go somewhere visually pleasing. And Australia isn't, you can't fight the fishing industries here because it's just, it's legal, it's happening behind closed doors and it's, it's difficult. So, and I think until the Australian public wants to help sharks in the way they want to help turtles and dolphins, that it's not going to be possible for me to do much. So it's really weird. There's like so many different angles to it, but before I even think about targeting commercial shark fisheries again, I've got to get people to love sharks. So it's like, how do you do that? But um, it'll always be where I started and something I still want to do. And I feel like I'll get better at finding ways to do it. But for now, I've just been focusing efforts elsewhere. And even the most wretched developing places that I go where sharks are being killed at in alarming rates and pregnant females are having their bellies cut open and baby sharks all over the beach, it's still better than what I see happening in Australia. Just under sheer ignorance, under people thinking that their comfort surpasses the need for having an apex predator alive in the water and just it's crazy. Australia is definitely one of the worst places for environmental justice for animals like sharks. Basically, what's wrong with Australian fisheries? Global fisheries, but specifically Australian fisheries, what, what needs to be reformed? We have so much available to us. We've got all this wilderness abundance, and I think that that's put us on a dangerous path of just thinking that it's infinite. And just the disconnection, total disconnection. I mean, even in places in America where there's strong fisheries, the whole community will know and rely on that fishery in some areas. Everyone will, will have a say in it. But in Australia, we just, we aren't made aware of the laws. Even when there's marine parks being rolled back, it's not really public information unless the public goes looking for it. And I think it's difficult in our country to visually see a change in things. It's difficult for people to imagine the animals that get caught in shark nets when all they see are the pretty pink buoys from the beach. You know, people don't put two and two together. I think the biggest thing that needs to be changed about Australian fisheries is consumer demand. There's always going to be people making the decision to buy these things. And so how do you change the consumer demand? Awareness. <laughs> What's worked for you and what hasn't? in that pursuit and I don't know I don't know I don't know what's worked I know when I started I was like all right I'm gonna make all these politicians shut down this fishery I'm gonna change the world I'm super here it's gonna be awesome and <laughs> it's gonna be easy and then it was like oh I can't do anything like the government doesn't care and I was so excited when Peter Garrett got into power and I'm like he's gonna stop shark fisheries because he makes some of my favorite music and yay environment and then it was like this sudden realization that nobody gives a crap and that if we can profit from destroying nature, we will. And that's when I was like, all right, we'll start talking to the public about it. And I've seen sharks become way more of a discussion than they ever used to be. When I started out with Sea Shepherd, nobody even in Sea Shepherd talked about sharks. And now they're all like, yay, sharks. You know, it's definitely, they're coming into light more and more. And I don't know what's going to work or how it's going to work, but I have found what I like doing and what I find successful, which is filmmaking. So little films that I can make about stuff happening in Australia has been my way of reaching the public. And honestly, I think it's going to take something really drastic to make the general population of Australia wake up and realise that there is need for 
environmental change. Why should people care about sharks? Hmm. Everyone should care about sharks because so many reasons. Well, one, because they're radical and <laughs> they definitely suffer more than any other animal just because we don't care about them. So I think people need to realize the power they have when an animal's surrounded by a stigma or a negative opinion from the public. They really suffer at the hands of our fear. So people need to realize how powerful their thoughts about animals are. Sharks are a great example about that. And we should care about them because if we like eating fish and swimming in the ocean and all the things that make the ocean great, then you have to like the one animal that's in charge of that. And that is the shark. As much as people don't want to admit it, we need them. So when you're saying changing the perspective of people in terms of relating to sharks, it makes me think of a couple of amazing people we've spoken to already for these um, podcasts. Yeah. Mark Healy and Kimmy Werner from Hawaii, mm -hmm. both free diving specialists and um, yeah, real water people. But they both echoed each other when they were talking about their interactions with sharks and how their first instinct is one of fleeing and panic, that first tiny little micro, for them anyway, it's a tiny little microsecond they can acknowledge it and they just flip it. They talk about flipping it. You just do the exact opposite. And the practice of that. And the yeah, practice doing of their that, water like, time yeah. has been to let their um, mind tell their body what to do instead of just going with the fight or flight mechanism. And yeah. usually with big apex predators, it's definitely flight. Yeah, it's a full 180. And it was making me curious to hear if you have that same kind of mechanism or if it's a different type of moment that happens for you because what I'm seeing in my mind is that all right well how do we how do we guide people to feel okay about being with animals that their whole life they've been taught to not feel okay about sharing space with I feel like that's me with waves <laughs> that's net there's definitely something wrong with me I remember being a kid and like there was this one dive where this tiger shark was like charging me and I was just like smiling the whole time. I was like, this is awesome. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. Um, so no, I don't have to fight that. Mechanism. You don't have that little no, moment. There's no 180 all. for you. No, the 180 would be panicking. For there's you times where I'm like, yeah, <laughs> there's times where I'm like, okay, this is getting sketchy. I need to get out of the water. I definitely respect them, but there's never been a time where I'm like, oh shit, that's scary. For sharks anyway, for everything else, yeah. But never for sharks. And I think that just comes from being raised with them from a young age. Um, but, and this is something I really love enforcing in people is that as amazing as it is to swim with sharks, I love it when people who are totally petrified of sharks or the ocean still have respect for them and you don't need to interact with them or even like them to realize how important they are. And sometimes having that fear of them is is even better because it means that you have you know you have the most natural instinct that you have towards that animal and that's pretty humbling and pretty cool so nobody needs to go and swim with a great white to respect them or to fight with them or to have any impact on their lives you can be totally terrified if you see a tiny little reef shark and still still know that that animal is important
I reckon there's probably a lot of people who would hear that and be like, oh, that's so good to hear. So <laughs> yeah. I don't have to go and swim with those bull sharks in Ballina River tomorrow oh, and to it's, respect them. You know, you look at people that, that have these interactions with sharks and like me with, with tiger sharks and everybody's like, oh, that's amazing. You're just swimming with that shark. It's like your pet. And then I'm just thinking of the one time that I was swimming with tiger sharks like in Darwin and I was in a cage and I was like, thank God for this cage. <laughs> you know, it's about the situation. There's, there's so many, I mean, surfers are way braver than me because I get to swim with sharks in clear water where I'm making eye contact and I know these sharks. But people surf in their hunting grounds looking like their prey with no eye contact. And that to me is just way more confronting than actually being in the water with the animal. Is that what led you to write the um, guide to surfing with sharks that you've just put out? Yeah, I actually got, I had someone reach out to me from Ballina and she was a school teacher and it was her partner that pulled his friend out of the water after one of the attacks. And I actually met him and he like came uh, in with a walking stick, you know, limping on his leg. And I'd met lots of shark attack victims before, but they're like hosting Shark Week and making hundreds of thousands of dollars of sponsorship because they're cool and they you know, still surf and do amazing stuff after a shark attack, and that's awesome. But then there was this sudden realization for me that people have been traumatized by being attacked by sharks and had their life ruined. And I think at that moment I was like, crap, I've got to stop talking about sharks as if they're my pets and as if they're awesome little creatures because it's really disrespectful to people that have been through that. And meeting someone like that for the first time was really humbling and wanting to help them was why I thought the surfing guide to sharks. And I went on the Queensland like surf lifesaving website and I looked at all the dangerous marine life uh, information they had and there was like jellyfish and this and that and there wasn't anything about sharks. And I was like, this is ridiculous. There's no information for people. And the biggest thing I wanted with the surfing guide was to take it to schools, which is something I did in Ballina. And that was really cool to be able to talk about safety there. But yeah, mm. making that guide and having to read through stories of shark attacks was really confronting as well. So it definitely humbled me a bit and made me have a little bit more respect. That's so great. It's, I really admire the way you bring compassion to all the different facets of your activism and really humanize the different people who can be impacted by the things you put out into the world. It's really extraordinarily sensitive. Can you tell us as surfers, what should we be doing or not be doing in the ocean in terms of how we might be interacting with sharks? Yeah, um, there's so many specific things I could say, but I think the biggest one to make clear is surfers are on the front line of shark interactions and have the most dangerous encounters imaginable. And there's so many tiny little things that you could look out for that could make decisions on when and how and where to enter the water very different. And the only way you're ever going to be safe in the water is not from the government starting culls or from a shark net, but from the personal information that you have with yourself. Knowledge is power, especially in these situations, and that's the biggest thing. So tiny things that you can learn about what environmental factors increase the presence of sharks. What time of day can do something in a shark's brain that makes them in hunting mode as opposed to cruising mode. Simple little things like this. There's so much information. A lot of people think sharks are enigmas, but we know a lot about them. And I think it's really important 
and really powerful to have that information at hand. Is it really, really dangerous to pee in your wetsuit when you're surfing? I hope not, because that's like the best thing about wearing a wetsuit. <laughs> <laughs> My favourite thing of winter, right? I know, right? <laughs> Um, there's really some <laughs> evidence, isn't there some evidence though? That the only thing that I, I will say about this is that I know boys in particular, not girls, but I know lots of boys that have been bitten by wobbygong sharks after peeing in their wetsuit at Julian Rocks, but that's it. Um, Alright, I'm not drinking tea before I go to my <laughs> earlies, earlies this time of year. Look, <laughs> some risks you just got to take for the joy of it, better to <laughs> die on your feet than live yeah. on your knees, just pee in that wetsuit. Yeah. yeah, life is fatal. So yeah, sharks pick up on urine, they pick up on human blood, they pick up on that whole thing about them sniffing one drop of blood and a million drops of water, that's all true, but they don't react to it. They're actually tuned into like specific hemoglobins in fish blood and that smell. So Has there been any research about menstrual blood? Yeah, no effect. Nothing. Like so they, Laird was wrong? Yes, so wrong. Oh, what? Oh my gosh, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then um, riddle me this. So I also have the thing of um, uh, the kind of electrical tingly feeling. There's like a, another, you know, surf urban myth of of love these. feeling like you're being scanned, mm -hmm. right? So I've heard people, you know, there's a lot of creative people in this area. There's all kinds of stuff that people come up with. And I was just wondering <laughs> in your experience, have you ever heard or is there anything backing up that notion that if a shark's in the water around you and it is in a curious mode, um, hunting mode, is there any type of frequency that they can emit or is there any sort of sensitivity in a human that can pick up the fact that there's a shark around them sniffing you, picking up your scent or your electrical or your heart rate or anything like that? So I'm going to start this by saying that I don't do yoga or have crystals and I'm like the least spiritual person out there. But having said that, one of the things I say in the surfing guide is the most powerful tool you have is your gut. And when I was researching the importance of tiger sharks in somewhere like Western Australia during the shark cull and a lot of tiger sharks were being killed, I read about how their presence protects the growth of seagrass because they influence the movements of animals eating seagrass. And all these other cases of sharks. This animal is an apex predator that, like I said, is kind of lazy and a bit of a stoner. And a lot of what they rely on to hunt, to survive, to affect the ecosystem the way they do is by having a presence in the water. You know, that's the biggest thing that they contribute to the ecosystem, in my opinion, is just their presence. So animals have to pick up on that. Sometimes with their camouflage and their hunting techniques, all animals have is the detection of that presence. So 100%, that gut feeling that you have when you're in the water, that's nature, that's instinct. That's something that we have to defend ourselves and that's something that sharks give out because that's their purpose. And I feel like it should be like that with lots of apex predators, but I definitely have experienced that with sharks. After I encountered a great white shark for the first time underwater, I felt like I was better at picking up their presence in other places. Like I'd go down to the beach on a beautiful day perfect weather and I'd just be like nah it doesn't feel right even though it looks nice and then later find out that there were great whites in the area so yeah 100% they have that presence for a reason and we can pick up on it for a reason it's mm. part of nature mm. Mm. can we talk about surfers and well we've been having more incidents of 
surfer-shark interactions in recent years. Do you have any explanation for why that is? Um, there's so many. I think an increase of people in the water, I think the distribution of sharks is changing, opportunities of food sources are changing. I think there's a lot more media and awareness about the attacks as well. Um, and yeah, I think one of the biggest things is just the number of people entering the water. And I think this is something with population increase that we're just going to see more of. And in certain parts of the world, like in Florida, we know why. We know that the water temperature changes distribution of fish, cause certain species to come in closer and having more interactions because of that. And then in some other areas, we still don't know. But yeah, it's, it's definitely happening. They're definitely becoming more of a thing. And it's interesting that the years where we had this spike in this area, so just a couple of years ago, um, because Lauren's got family and originates from Florida, we were getting, you know, the news from an increase in activity in Florida at that time. And, you know, the surfing network's global. So then you talk to mates in Hawaii and there's another incident or two there around the same seasonal time, November, October, that period in like 2015, I think it was. Um, and then New Zealand, I got family there. There was reports there of a lot of activity with whites coming right into shore. Really? Um, and, and then California was the same. I passed through California and the surf cameras that are on every surf spot in California, in Southern California anyway, um, I happened to be uh, at, a, at the Patagonia headquarters actually and someone had Rincon surf spot camera on their um, computer and it was just showing the waves and a uh, juvenile white was captured launching out of the water behind the surface at the break and heaps of spearfishers were having pretty intense encounters with whites in that area and it just seemed like it was happening everywhere and that was an interesting thing for me to talk with people about back here because I was being asked for my opinion on the issue in this area and um, and I didn't really have any science or anything to reference when I was talking about this, but I, I, I liked raising the point that this was happening in different oceans in the world, that there was a spike in activity that was relatively at the same time. And I just wonder if, if, if you had any experience of that at that time or if you've heard or read anything that relates to no, any of that. that's amazing. I've definitely heard a lot of theories about why it happened here but not around the world. But I mean, it makes sense. You think about these, these animals, how far they travel, the fact that they rely off the magnetic fields of the earth to travel in some cases. Of course, they're tuned in to changes and things change with them and, and that makes a lot of sense, but that's crazy. You yeah, know, just, at that time, I was sort of, I wouldn't, I wouldn't joke, but I kind of, I like trying to keep a little, even if it's dark humor and all this stuff, just at times where it can get heavy but I was thinking at the time like well there is an incredible amount of um, sonar imaging of the ocean's floor, ocean floor around the world happening, 3D imaging happening of the entire ocean floor, all of this increased activity going on everywhere in the oceans right now. Um, have you again, have you had any, uh, come across anything, any information in that area where sharks are uh, impacted from yeah, the increase in technology and I mean, we, we see it all the time with cetaceans, so why would it be any different for the other animals? Yeah. And when we look at cetaceans being a food source for a lot of sharks, what affects them affects sharks. So absolutely. Mm. I mean, there's, there's so many things we're doing to the ocean that happen naturally, but also we're exacerbating that could contribute to that. Mm. 
but it, again, it's one of those things where it's like we'll never know sometimes. There's still so many mysteries about sharks mm. and then other things that just make sense. Mm. So do you, so as a shark conservationist, do you still feel like there's room to manage the shark-human interaction? I, I mean, obviously you do. You've come out with this Australian guide to surfing with sharks. What about other, um, other sort of shark management techniques? What about drum lines? What about nets? And what about the new drone system that's just been employed here? Yeah, um, a lot of things work really well, like the Shark Spotters program, South Africa. The drones are an interesting one. Uh, a lot of people think that people like myself really oppose culls and drumlines and nets because they're killing sharks. But it's not a factor of putting shark life above human life. It's a factor of those things not efficiently protecting people. They're an easy tactic. They're a visual tactic. They help tourism, not lives. So a lot of the things that we oppose are just because we know how sharks work and we know that's not one of the ways. Um, there's definitely lots of cool little things like the drones and the spotters that, that could work. It would be really nice to see them implemented more, but unfortunately our government will always go for what is easier to look at um, for the tourists, what makes them look good, what's the quick solution. And the other ones, they'll take time to learn and they'll have flaws, so it, it's hard to implement any of them. But really, like you said, the most protection that we can have as surfers is really understanding a lot of these things that you've outlined in your guide to surfing with sharks and that is looking at time of day and increasing our sensitivity and awareness to the beachscape and oceanscape around us. Yeah and it's just it comes from as well being a kid getting in the water with sharks whenever I knew I was going somewhere like the first time I went to Tiger Beach I was like all right I'm gonna research tiger sharks so I did my little nerdy thing at the computer and looked up all this stuff about tiger sharks and tiger sharks do certain things when you're in the way and they're pissed off and they want you to move. Every shark is so predictable. So knowing these little things is a huge deal. I've got big eyes spray painted on the bottom of my surfboard. Not that I ever surf anywhere where sharks can swim underneath me because I'm scared of waves over three feet. So I like having that because they're ambush predators and if something's looking at them, they're not gonna sneak up on you. So just tiny little things like that. And I like them because they actually give you confidence, which is another thing in the water is if you feel safe, they can pick up on that as well. Uh, one of the things I love when diving with, with certain species of sharks is there's always one person who's like freaked out and if you go down a lot of the time we're in like kind of an arena set up and there'll be someone feeding sharks and the shark knows straight away, they're usually American, who the person is that's freaked out <laughs> <laughs> and the shark will go straight to that person. It's yeah. shark week. Yeah. <laughs> it's just planted the seed of fear in wow. all American children. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So they're the decoys we need. I, I've met a couple of people like this that I've called Koi. Like, Koi. Brought, yeah, brought them right down to their nickname is Koi for decoy because I'll be like, yeah, you sit out in the channel there. You make lots of noise. You do lots of kicking and splashing for I'm waves. I'm stealing that and Koi. Then, yeah, and then you can Amazing. be our little, our little helper out there. And we know anyone who's in the area is going to come to you first because you're making the I'm going to start noise. calling people Koi, and they're not going to know why. Yeah. And I'll explain it after the dive. So it's, like, yeah, it's, so it's, true. it's the inverse of the. Um, the cetacean attraction to pregnant women, yeah, the yeah. whole story of that. So yeah. it's like sharks are just jerks, and they go, go for the one scared one. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no, they're yes, just the genius. weakest link in yeah. the chain. Yeah, opportunistic that way. Mm. It's so great to hear you talk and to hear your humanity among all of this too. You know, like a lot of 
these conversations can be kind of one way or the other, like highly emotive, people getting really emotionally charged about this sort of thing and intolerant of another point of view, or can be very cold and just academic and dismissive of anything other than the academic viewpoint. So it's really great to just be able to, yeah, back and forth and converse and keep it human and you know it's just a it's a very dynamic time for all of us in these spaces where as the human world gets less wild and just more human time everyone is just stuck in a human experience all the time then these moments where you're all of a sudden way out of the human scape can be really startling for a lot of us yeah and here but here we are on that fringe as divers surfers or sailors fishers going back and forth between the two spaces. So it is a really important and valid, valid thing for us to kind of report back to each other, to, you know, to get to the water and experience what we experience and bring it back and talk among ourselves, but really totally. talk with other people as well and keep these things as real as we can and, and updated. Nobody in the conservation world is doing it too. And it really bothers me. I see people using the largest sharks in the ocean to further their cause and either projecting this thing about sharks being harmless or wonderful because they have a good relationship with them and not taking into consideration the other interactions people have with them. And for some people, like abalone divers and commercial fishermen, it's an occupation and they have to deal with this terrifying animal. And I remember being at those, those meetings. Remember the public forums they had when they were wanting to put the drum lines in at Ballina? It was like that scene out of Jaws where the captain's like, you know, full like town screaming, what about my business? And then there was some conservationist who would be like, well, we can't kill the sharks because they're apex predators, which is very true. But the man that's seen his friend taken off his surfboard next to him in the water and dragged him out of the water and put a tourniquet around his leg does not care about the importance of that animal in the ecosystem. He cares about how horrific it was to see that. And the one thing that brought him joy in life, which is surfing, has been taken away from him. So it's got to be a balance and I think more conservationists need to start taking that into consideration, which is not happening, unfortunately. So hopefully, hopefully it does. Hopefully they become a bit more understanding and realise it's the only way things get done. Can you speak yeah. a little bit to the magic of sharks? What's magical about sharks? They like to bite stuff. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so do our dogs. <laughs> well, dogs are pretty magical too. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I, you know, I love people talking about like how magical dolphins are, and I'm like, yeah, but can they rip through a turtle shell? So I'm like, <laughs> I'm probably the worst person to speak on behalf of sharks because I just like them because they, you know, they they're gnarly. <laughs> um, they're, they're they're amazing animals, and they they do have personalities. They absolutely have personalities, and they can be cheeky, and they can be shy, and they can be funny. And there's so few animals in the water these days that you look at them and they're looking back at you and they're figuring you out. And there's also so few animals where once you're in the water with them and you're just coexisting with them, it's like the greatest honor in the world. Like being in the water with gnarly tiger sharks that are ripping into something and they're just letting you be there. That's like, oh, thanks guys. Thank you so much. Like it's the best feeling ever. And I think people's fear of them and how dangerous and scary they are is what attracted me to them like no other animal can do that and I, I like that I think that's cool so unfortunately it's it's their downfall as well but it's also the best thing about them 
Awesome. Maybe I should sound like about how nice they are. Um, <laughs> some of them are really soft. <laughs> some of them have pretty skin. <laughs> you're doing great. You're yeah. really doing good. good. Yeah, you're, you're digging I'm them up. Thank you. <laughs> Do you remember that time when we saw the oh my the God. mama white broken forget. head? So when all of this stuff was happening here in the area, um, we were surfing our closest one of our closest spots broken head a point break over the hill and the sand was like as good as it ever gets and there was very few people there's only like three or four of us out which is very rare but it was among all that time and people were pretty spooked and there were three um big mama like 18 foot plus whites in the area that were confirmed seen at the same time in different parts of their evans head ballina and bruns were the one period where they were like oh there's definitely three that we know in the area. Broken head's so sharky too. And so then, don't... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you is. should tell all of the backpackers and yeah. about that. But we were surfing and, and one came from the beach and came up the sand, out of edge of the bank of the point and out to sea. So not from the islands coming into us, but from Suffolk Park along the shoreline basically and past our little group of us, our neighbour and like three other people and the fin was like three feet at least it actually tall. flopped over it was it was it was well i didn't see flop i saw the opposite i just saw the most strength i've ever seen in the ocean in this creature and i've, I've seen orcas hunting in alaska and it blew my mind but they still had that dolphin little wee thing they go up and down <laughs> up and down and this thing was just flexing and moving through the water with such a presence and there were a couple of dolphins behind it that looked like chihuahuas like yapping at its tail and this thing just moved past us in this in this way i've never seen anything land or ocean move with a presence like this and we were all just floored completely floored and it was like seeing a mythical creature from another time another space a just ripped through a dinosaur totally and it was phenomenal. It was a really, really nothing happened. Nothing else. It didn't feel scary. It wasn't That's in. It wasn't in the it mode had full that you intention talk about. Of yeah. Moving in the direction that it was going. It was an incredible it was encounter. So lucky to have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah. It was like we felt like that too. I, it was, I have a theory, and that is the shark that you see is not going to be the shark that bites you. Is that pretty true? Yeah. 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 That's they rely on that. Yeah. And um, with the with the big great whites. It's, it, they're not usually the problem. So like a lot of the attacks are attributed to the great whites under three meters because they're like the pea platers and they're switching from a diet of fish to mammals and they're learning. And great whites, one of the few, like there's only a few other species that can do this, but they can actually have elevated body temperatures. So they have a countercurrent blood system that moves uh, new reoxygenated blood past their working muscles so they actually can raise their body temperature to the surrounding waters which means they're smart they think they play they test and you can definitely see that in the water and that level of intelligence also unfortunately means that they are way more curious sometimes less like survival mode but also curious so the young ones are the ones that kind of put us in danger yeah well play just like with a puppy can be quite mouthy yeah for sure. when they learn that's yeah. how they are yeah. Um, another question. Oh yeah, can you talk about how sharks um, 
navigate based on the Earth's magnetic systems. Did you say that? Yeah. Oh, I'm a bit rusty on all this. I don't this. know about that, but that sounds ridiculously magical. Yeah, so hammerheads, for example, was something that they did a lot of research into is, is the reason for their head. And there was a lot of like stuff that shows they use it for hunting. But another thing is that, and with a lot of sharks as well, they home in on prey, for example, by knowing the gradient from when they move their head side to side and when it hits their nose and then they can home in on that and then hammerheads are an example of one of the species that picks up on magnetic fields of the earth to travel to locations and congregate just the most insane ability to pick up on stuff like that and something in the surfing guide that i love that i personally when i read about this i was like that's so cool is that sharks all sharks have ampullae of lorenzini so they it's basically gel filled pores is like shark blackheads that's how I refer to them because they look like blackheads underwater <laughs> and they pick up on electrical impulses in the water so one of those is the bioelectric impulse the very faint one that our heartbeat gives off in the water so that's why sharks if something's hiding in the sand they'll know where it is because they can feel it kind of like echolocation but different because it relies on that animal to be alive and giving off that's why they bite cameras and things with electricity underwater that's why shark shields work it's kind of like a punch in the face for them um, so when you get a cut, say you've got a cut in your leg, a lot of people think that the blood is what's going to attract sharks, but it's actually because your skin acts as an insulating layer. And if you've got a cut in your leg, the bioelectric impulse from your heartbeat is now going into the water faster than it was before through that cut. And sharks pick up on that. So that's one of the things that being injured in the water can make dangerous is just the increase of heart rate. That's why they reacted to me when I would raise my heart rate as a kid and get them to come closer. That's how they pick out weakness, fear, potential prey. So their ability to pick up on things like that, I'm sure we haven't even begun to understand. Thanks to Madison Stewart for her compassionate conservation work and play. You can learn more about Maddie on Instagram at sharkgirlmadison. Special thanks always to our sound engineer and musical guru, Shannon Sol Carroll. You can find his music and learn more about his musical activism on Instagram at Shannon Soul Carol. That's Carol with two L's. On behalf of myself, Lauren Hill, and my partner in rhyme, Dave Rastovich, thank you for making the time to listen with us. We'll be continuing the conversation on Instagram, where we're at Water People Podcast. You can find every episode and some extras on our website, waterpeoplepodcast.com. Mm-hmm.